those are the tough moments that come with flight test of a new asset and a new type of aeroplane. As human beings working in that environment, that, those, those times are, are hard. Our vision for this company is and always has been to have many, many airlanders in service. I'm Nick, and you're listening to the Niche Aviation Podcast. Mainstream aviation is broken and boring. Manufacturers, airlines, and investors prioritize growth and profit over principles and their customers. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing guests who are changing this perception. These businesses challenge existing ways of working. These businesses prioritize customer experience. These businesses tell great stories. These are their stories. Welcome to the first episode of the Niche Aviation Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Tom Grundy. Tom is the CEO of Hybrid Air Vehicles. Hybrid Air Vehicles is a hybrid airship manufacturer based in Bedford, England. In 2012, they built the world's longest aircraft, also known as the Airlander 10. Measuring just under 100 metres long, the Airlander 10 is about 20% longer than an Airbus A380. The Airlander 10 is capable of flying continuously for five days. It has a maximum payload of 10 tonnes, or can carry 90 passengers. The company is now focused on the production of further hybrid airships, and have letters of intent for 10 aircraft. They are also currently raising investment on the crowdfunding website Crowdcube. I'll add further details in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy our discussion. A lot of people look at your aircraft and compare it to your 1930s airship or blimp. Yeah. Maybe if we, if you just give a rough explanation of what is the difference. Well, it's it's really different. We we obviously we use some of that technology. We use some of the physics um, that that was behind those aircraft. But really, we're we're a new category. Really, we bring together um, technology and physics from airships t- together with vectored thrust. Um, so almost tilt rotor type concepts. And that's hugely useful for us for low speed maneuverability. Uh, gives us short takeoff and landing capabilities. The aircraft will take off and clear a 50 foot obstacle inside six times its own length. Um, and together with the bow thruster, it means we can maneuver the airplane around on the ground on the airfield. So the, the shape of the airplane uh, is shaped to generate aerodynamic lift in forward flight. So vectored thrust, aerodynamic lift, and buoyant, thr- buoyant lift um, all together in one package. Now, what that means is you've got an aeroplane that um, has the efficiency, most of the efficiency that airships did. So, you know, when an airship's floating, it's floating. You know, the lift is coming for free. Um, but the downside is it floats. So if your job is to go somewhere and deliver 10 tonnes of cargo, once you've taken that 10 tonnes of cargo off a traditional airship, you've got 10 tonnes of buoyancy to deal with. And that was a difficult ground handling challenge. So the reason we've packaged these technologies up this way is we've got the efficiency of an airship almost in an airplane that's heavier than air so that it comes down and lands and sits on the ground as it should, as an airplane should do um, when you're operating um, on the ground. Um, there's all sorts of benefits flow from that. 
two of the key ones are very long endurance flight. So that inherent efficiency allows us to fly an aeroplane for days or weeks at a time. So in a surveillance or communications application, that is transformational. Um, and also we have the ability to take off and land from places that aren't an airfield. So think of us as a super helicopter. You know, we'll go further, carry more. Um, we'll do it at much lower cost per tonne kilometer and be able to deliver into parts of the world that aren't served by airfield infrastructure right now. One of the things that amazed me about your aircraft or the airlander is it's massive. <laughs> um, what, what made you build something so big to start off with? Uh, it's really efficient. So um, as we get bigger, or as, a, as you can imagine, as any given hybrid aircraft gets bigger, there's more volume inside it, so you can accommodate more lifting gas. Um, so as you grow in length, you're cubing the volume. And also we're a lifting body, so you know we have a squared term going on for the lift that we can generate aerodynamically. So the bigger we are, the more efficient we are. To give you a feel for that, um, the Airlander 10 um, is just over 300 feet long, about 92, 93 meters. And it'll carry 10 tons of payload. Um, by the time we get about 25% longer in length, we've got something called the Airlander 50. And the Airlander 50 is our future model will carry 50 tons of payload, six shipping containers. So yes, it's the, it's the size that gives us the efficiency. But then when you look at what it actually takes to manage and, and use that size in practice, because of that short takeoff and landing um, capability, we operate off, it doesn't, you know, we, we don't need to be operating off a runway. We can be operating off any sort of 600 meter diameter flat surface. Um, so that could be field, it can be marsh, it can be ice, it can even be water. So in terms of the flexibility of where you put that airplane and what you do with it, we're in a, we're in a very different place to thinking about big airfields, big airports. Would you mind giving me a bit of background behind hybrid air vehicles and how it all got started? Of course, we um, have been, uh, we, we were established in 2007. Um, and the company um, came about at that time um, with a sort of a founding concept to really bring hybrid air vehicles into service. And it was built um, from people who knew lighter than air technology. They uh, designed, built, put into service um, things called skyships, um, so traditional airships. And the skyships had always been quite high technology. They were adopted things like fly-by-light technology quite early, so fiber optic signaling to the control surfaces. They were real sort of technology-led business in, in that space. Um, and they'd come up with the concept of the hybrid air vehicle to really solve this buoyancy problem. Uh, how do you manage a buoyant ship but still keep the keep the benefits of it? Um, and so in 2007, they got together and started hybrid air vehicles with the aim of moving from their 40-foot subscale demonstrator up to a full-scale contract um, as quickly as they could. And by 2010, they'd had a really remarkable breakthrough, which was that they'd won, they won the um, a program called the LEMV, Long Endurance Multi-Intelligence Vehicle Program for the United States Department of Defense. And the company teamed with Northrop Grumman um, to bid for and win that program against competition from the likes of Lockheed Martin. So small UK company with a 40-foot demonstrator got this great step up 
Um, and out of that program, delivered the first aircraft full scale into flight. That's what I found amazing in the documentary is at that point, hybrid air vehicles had 14 people and they were competing against Lockheed Martin, who was a hundred billion dollar business. How, how did they even do that? How, how does that happen? Well, it's, um, you know, it was a, a great story and a great result um, um, for them. And look, in terms of, of how that happens, um, I, I wasn't part of that team at the time. But when I look back at what they were doing, they, they knew their stuff, Nick. They, they had um, they developed the concept. Uh, they'd gone through the design, the, the concept design work, and they'd gone out and they'd really proved that the concept worked, albeit at small scale. You know, I say small scale as a 40 foot um, um, demonstrator that was on the civil register, but it, nevertheless, it was small scale by our, by our terms. Um, and obviously, um, their choice of teaming partner in Northrop Grumman was very important. You know, that brought a whole team together. Um, and from then on, the story was really one of scaling up really, really fast. Um, they, that team had to make this real very quickly. Um, so from the point of contract award to first flight was 26 months, which is, you know, by aerospace standards, really, as you know. So you're, you're building a hundred meter airship in the space of 26 months. That's right. And, and getting it cleared for flight and getting pilots ready to fly and everything else that goes around the program. And, um, you know, to give you an example of the you know, the, the lengths the team went to, within six months of contract award, all of what we call the hard structure, so the big payload module, the fins, the engines, um, the nacelles, they were all delivered, you know, not just designed and built, but delivered and they're ready ready to assemble. So they really, that, that you know, they, yes, they had their opportunity and they won the opportunity and, and did fantastically well to do that. But it's in the delivery phase that, you know, things really count. And it was just a phenomenal performance. Um, what you'll have also seen from the documentary is that um, the team went from, you know, that their resilience was tested hugely. You know, they went from um, that great win and that great success and all the exhilaration that comes from not only running a first flight, but, you know, first flight of this concept anywhere in the world at full scale. You know, you now know the concept works. Um, and in 2013, the um, political landscape changed massively in, in the United States. And so the um, administration, the incoming or the, the, the re-elected administration there did two things. They, 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 they had the fiscal cliff and the sequestration issues that people may remember where really, you know, it was a huge sort of blockage in getting the American uh, federal budget approved. Um, which led to the need for all sorts of cuts on the defense side. And at the same time, we're really focused on coming out of Afghanistan sooner than originally planned, which is where the airplane was due to be deployed to. So having had this great peak, um, the team were faced with a real setback in that program. That point there is also amazing. Um, the fact that the, the aircraft was sponsored by the US, US Department of Defense or the US Army, and then you guys then bought it back. If you can just run me through that, how did that how did that all go? And I think there was some huge figures of actually the difference between what you they invested in it and what you bought it back for. Well, I think what we saw was the opportunity to um, 
take forward the development that was due to be done under a big military program and take it forward privately and put a capability there on the shelf for our customers much more broadly. Um, so, so naturally, you know, the aeroplane, you know, we, we've all, many of us have seen programs end where the aeroplane that people have invested so much time and effort and money to take forward actually gets scrapped. Um, and we were very, very focused on making sure that didn't happen here. And so, as you say, we, we found a way to buy the aeroplane back. Um, obviously, yes, for a little bit less than, than, um, than, than the development cost to that point. But equally, we were taking on the responsibility of taking that forward. Um, so um, the, the actual program that we ran then involved um, the, the mechanics of getting a, the aircraft um, essentially boxed up, shipped back over to the UK. Uh, we moved into the hangars at Cardington that were in the middle of a, you know, they're very historic buildings, but they were in the middle of a huge renovation program at the time. Cardington was where the original airships were built. It was. And so there's a legacy of, of infrastructure there that, that is there and is big enough for, for us to use for, a, for an aeroplane like this. And, you know, that's a sort of a slightly overlooked part of this story that that melding together of aeroplane and a, um, you know, 100-year-old hangar um, was, was quite a big deal, actually. Just, just to clarify that, once the, the US Army had, stopped your funding and you had managed to persuade them to buy it back they gave you 30 days to come pick the aircraft up and you rushed you all rushed over there picked up the aircraft and and brought it back to the uk at that point is it okay just to set it up and go and fly off or was was there more complicated i'm sure i'm sure there's a lot more complicated stuff behind that yes there was there's a lot more to it than just unboxing it putting it together and, and flying it at that point in time uh, actually the key thing for us was to take the opportunity to start to develop the aeroplane away from that pure military use and into a broader um, a broader set of applications there's two ways there's two ways that we really thought about that one was um, flying in the United States we were flying on a military range under military regulation what we now needed to do was to take the aeroplane and move it across into the civil regulatory environment so this was really our first steps towards type type certificate the ultimate type certification of the aircraft so by the time we were flying in the uk we were flying under an easa permit to fly um, and that transition from um, the military approach to the commercial approach was a challenging piece of work but one that brought us together with the regulators to put us in a really good position now when we look at how we bring Airlander into production service in commercial airspace. Then from a use case point of view, um, the aeroplane was a prototype. We wanted to make that a, a demonstrator for multiple uses. So we completely changed the cabin area from what was designed to be an unmanned aircraft, an unpiloted aeroplane. Um, into a multi-purpose demonstrator where we could fit it out with seats, we could fit it out with accommodation, we could fit it out with sensors. Um, and that's work that we've carried on now that we've, you know, now that we're not flying that prototype anymore. The whole drive of the business now is to take the production Airlander 10 into service in four different sectors, four different verticals. Um, the military, comms and surveillance that we started from. Um, but we've got a really exciting future in green logistics 
in green point-to-point transportation and in the travel industry as well. The latter, obviously, a little bit um, distracted at the moment for with, with COVID, of course, um, but we offer such a unique capability into the tourism and leisure sector that we're looking forward to that uh, as that sector comes out of COVID, looking forward to working with them on that. Yeah, that's interesting. And maybe in a, in a bit later, we'll we'll talk about the use cases because I find that's that's quite interesting. In 2017, was it 2017 when you guys launched the prototype again and you had seven flights? Was that is that right? Seven flights of that prototype? We did. And that was, those videos just astound me and the the amazingness of that thing flying is 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 beautiful. Um, what are the highs and lows in your head between that period? Yes, so um, so obviously anybody that's watched the documentary and um, and, and has been been around the business and, and looks at us online will see that we had some lows in that uh, in that period, um, and and ended up with um, that particular airplane ended up being damaged in a ground incident, which led to us retiring it. So I probably don't have to go too much further to talk to you about, about the lows. Um, those are the tough moments that come with flight test of a new asset and a new type of aeroplane. Um, but knowing as you do that you mitigate risks and manage risks and look to avoid those situations, you know, as human beings working in that environment, that those those times are, are hard, for the, hard for the team. Um, but what you're doing that work for is to gather the data gather the information that you need to take the next step so it's really interesting for me within within the business in that period it's very clear we knew what we were doing in terms of flying a prototype to generate the information that we needed to go into production our vision for this company is and always has been to have many many airlanders in service um and we'll talk about some of the unique things that it'll bring in service uh, in, in a minute i'm sure um, and of course, when people look at those sort of setbacks, well, Airlander has, has got a has got a problem here. Well, well, actually, you know, we learned some things there that we're taking into the production program. But the business has always been about, obviously, the commercial success of many Airlanders in service. So when you look at the high points, I mean, they're almost too numerous to mention. Um, we're world leaders now in the UK and in the company in a completely new class of aircraft, one that can deliver 90% CO2 reductions and do things other aeroplanes can't do. And the reason that we're there is we built a design organization, have, have that approved for large aircraft design by EASA. We've built a production organization approved by the CEAA for production of these. Uh, we have months and months and months and months and months of experience of being constantly out in the elements, working in the aeroplane, doing what should be done on the aeroplane, which is maintaining it without relying on the hangar. You know, it's designed for everything to happen outside uh, to minimise the infrastructure needs of our customers. So a lot of people focus on the flights. I actually think as an operations person, as an engineer, we learned as much, if not more, from how you actually ground handle, maintain, because those are the hard yards that go into generating, um, you know, useful productive service on the aeroplane. And then the flights themselves, explored a big proportion of the flight envelope. I mean, we were, we, we as well as building design organization and um, production organization, we built a flight test organization and everything that goes with that. Um, so thousands of parameters um, from each of those flights captured in, captured in real time and logged. All that is now um, in our simulators in Bedford. It's gone into um, optimization of 
aerodynamic shapes, hold shapes that we've been doing in the wind tunnel at the Mercedes facility here in the UK. Um, you know, every single design element within the business has been calibrated by the the data that we got from those first flights. And when you're in a new configuration, that the value of that information is so huge. So not only were there emotional highs in there, but from a practical engineering sense, we laid down the groundwork that we needed to take the airplane into production in that period. And I and I think you can see that within the documentary was amazing as your resilience within the team is just amazing. When I watch it, I just think that's what British engineering is about in terms of these people in through all the elements, just just carrying on, pushing through with this just one focus goal on we will be the world's best hybrid air vehicle. And maybe that that leads really nicely into the next point where we talk about a lot of people will look at the aircraft without thinking much of it and be like, oh, that's just an airship, it hadn't worked. I, th- I think what they failed to grasp is it's it's not an aeroplane. You're not going to go from Heathrow to New York on it. Um, maybe interesting to understand the specific use cases that you're building it for. And then I think that that really gets across the point of actually this is really useful in these scenarios. Uh, absolutely, Nick. Form follows function, doesn't it? And um, I, I think you're exactly right to say that a lot of people, when they talk, to, particularly about the commercial applications of the aeroplane, they start, uh, it's, 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 too, it's very easy to start with what we do today and to try and overlay Airlander onto that. Um, actually, we occupy a different set of roles, and those roles are built off the unique capabilities. So in surveillance or communications, our ability to carry a given a, you know, given weight of payload for a given amount of time, it's between 10 and 100 times bigger than you know, more capability than we have in fixed-wing aviation or unmanned aviation today. So it's that sort of order of magnitude change in capability and comms and surveillance that really got us our big break back in 2010. And 2018, we simulated Airlander in a NATO exercise. And over a five-day exercise, we did work that would otherwise have taken 10 other aeroplanes of three different types to have done. So, you know, you've got an efficient start point. The aeroplane's already efficient compared to one competitor but actually, because you can put so many different functions on board one airplane, you can aggregate the roles that are being done by many. Um, so it's a force multiplier in that sense. Now, when we move to the more commercial applications, um, I'll give you a couple of examples. We're, we're definitely not fast enough to do the London to New York trip uh, in a way that people we, we think there would be a big market for that. Um, what we do really well is shorter journeys at very, very low carbon footprint. Let me give you an example. Um, If you look at a journey like Oslo to Stockholm, so to move from Oslo to Stockholm, you can do that in an airliner. You can do that by car. You can do that by a combination of road and rail. What Airlander does is it allows you to complete that journey a little bit more slowly than the the, um, airplane faster than the road and rail um, combinations, um, but at a carbon footprint that's lower than going overland by road and rail. The other thing that you overlay on that is the experience that you're having. So our cabin is unpressurized. Um, The airplane doesn't bank, it flies very flat. 
Um, the cabin is a rectangular or trapezoidal cross-section. You can stand up in it. Um, it's big. So with 90 passengers on board, each of those passengers got quite a lot of space around them. It's quiet. It's so quiet that when we were flight testing, our pilots asked for additional cameras pointing at each of the engines because the pilots couldn't hear when they were turning an engine. Now, you know, I talked in there about space and about the experience. One of the different things about an aeroplane like this is that um, you, you tend to be able to put the whole weight allowance on board this aeroplane without running out of volume. We've got a lot more, lot more space. And I think some of your listeners will, will know that often they run out of volume before they run out of being able to put enough weight on the on the aircraft. We're the other way around. So by the same token as, you know, we'll be able to carry 90 passengers and they will have space because we'll have plenty of space for them. Um, they'll be about as heavy as we can take. Um, in a freight configuration, you can carry large volumes um, for Airlander 10, up to 10 tonnes, for Airlander 50, 50 tonnes plus. Um, and so what that opens up is green logistics, either using the short takeoff and landing capability of the aeroplane to go closer into logistics centres and give a real flexible airborne logistics service, or the 50-tonner is really designed for remote access, getting into remote parts of the world that aren't currently served by airfields. So think of you know the mining sector, for example, as a user there. So um, all together, um, we're driving at a 600 aircraft, $50 billion primary sales market over the next 20 years. That's what the market surveys tell us are out there across that sort of range of uses. Just on that last point, I actually saw that um, one of your competitors in France, Flying Whales, um, they've just raised apparently close to 200 million. And one of them's from the Canadian timber uh, industry. Yes, that um, those sort of logistics applications are really key use for us. Now, um, it's really interesting to see what's going on around the world. Um, the reason that we're really working and the reason the company was set up to work the hybrid concept was in those sort of use cases, the ability to land and the ability to load and unload from an aircraft that's on the ground, um, we think is a hugely important feature of what we do. Um, but those sort of applications of going into remote parts of the world and providing access, but doing it with low impact, low carbon impact, and also low infrastructure impact. You don't need to build that ice road. Um, you don't need to build that tarmac road um, if Airlander's there going in and out for you. I think the the Canadian government said it. It was for every mile they spend something like three million Canadian dollars on it. So their investment overall was a very small fraction in terms of how many miles they need to build. Uh, it's it's a hugely expensive job. I mean, those those ice roads for anybody who's watched ice road truckers, you you kind of know that those ice roads exist for five or six weeks of the year. So not only have you got the cost of putting them in, um, but the operation at the end of that road can only rely on that transport for a very small fraction of the year and and it's a sad feature of um, of what's going on in the world that actually that's getting harder and harder as, as those places warm up so look we, we think um there's there's so many reasons in fact we in the business we consider it an imperative that we find ways that aviation can do jobs without increasing its impact on the environment. It's, it's not a slogan, it's an imperative. We have to do it. Um, and whilst we're not going to be doing the London to New York trip, um, which, which is sort of the archetypal trip that a lot of people have in their mind, there's a huge world of aviation there and a huge set of roles where 
a hybrid aircraft will operate and will just take away cost and take away impact. I guess if we look at the next 18 months, what are the key obstacles to getting getting your airlander 10 up in the air and flying? Yeah, so our job um, is to now launch our production program. So our next milestone is to get the first aircraft into service type certified with customers. So we're working at the moment on um, bringing together the first customers and the institutional and, and large investors in the business that will that will take that program forward. We're working across all of those four sectors that I talked about um, um, to do that with initial customers. Um, actually, we um, moved a long way through that process in the travel sector. We haven't talked so much about that um, in, in this in this call, but that travel sector has been quite an early mover for us um, with the production airplane because that space that we can offer and the long range means they can offer some extraordinary experiences to their clients. Um, so with the COVID pandemic starting, of course, and really starting to impact us heavily in March, um, we're now working with that sector and with the others just to reconstitute those program launch conditions and, and, and get that program away. And in the meantime, that's allowed us to go to go back to Crowdcube and offer people the opportunity to be on our journey with us. And it's something that we um, we were hugely pleased to have done in 2015, 16 or 14, 15, I think. We'd had so much interest in the platform and in Ireland, and we were able to open that to people to join. So we've done that again just in this little period. And we've had 730 people, I think, come in as new investors in the last 10 days or so and and that's fantastic so that's live and that's open and uh, anybody who wants to be part of our journey that's a great way to do it and and so if we look forward what are the what are the obstacles that's going to hold you back post getting the funding so if you look at our forward plan um really the technology and the flying that we've done has put us in a great position from a from an engineering perspective. So uh, the team's in place. The team's got all of its approvals. We've got um, the program execution plan is uh, you know an inch thick. Um, so we know how to execute, and the technology base is there. Um, the step really for us to take is to close through this type certification. Clearly, alongside the aeroplane training, maintenance, um, getting the conditions in place for operators to be there with their operator certificates ready to operate the aeroplane. So we're progressively putting in place partnerships to deliver those services alongside us. Um, one of those is in place in the US with Vertex Aerospace, who've got a 40-year track record of delivering services to the DOD, for example. So it's really about making sure now that we've got the technology matured, that we've got all of the aligned channels alongside it so that our customers can rely on type certified aeroplane with all the range of services around it that they would need to make good money and deliver great services from operating Airlander. So we we want to have aircraft in service uh, late 24, early 25. That's our aim. And is that broadly the same same aircraft that you saw in the prototype in yes, 2017? Are they going to be... Very similar. It's about the same size. Um, we've we've made some changes in detail. We've actually um, developed some new elements based on what we learnt on on operating the airplane. 
um, but broadly the configuration's the same, similar sort of size. As I say, we've refined the shapes, refined the aerodynamics, refined the way things like the undercarriage work. One of the big things we've done is moved a lot of the systems around to make the airplane more easily maintainable on the ground. You know, we learned quite a lot from that ground operations segment. So, you know, this is the difference between a um, you know prototype and a road-going vehicle. It's it's not it's not quite concept car to uh, to in production. You know, it's it's been an incremental set of production maintainability sustainability changes that have, that have gone in. What's the best way of people learning more about Airlander and your company? Oh, um, so www.hybridairvehicles.com is our website. Um, that's got loads of information about everything we've talked about there and about our team. Um, Crowdcube is where we're fundraising at the moment. So jump on there in the next couple of weeks and um, and at least follow us. But anybody who wants to be part of our journey, that's the opportunity. Um, and we also work really hard to keep updates out there through LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, so follow us on, on those as well. Um, on our website, you'll also find the key customer contacts, um, the people whose job it is to help um, air operators and customers understand exactly what it would take to bring Airlander into service and the benefits that we can provide by being there. That's amazing. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again to Tom. I really enjoyed our discussion and look forward to speaking again soon. If you're interested in learning more about Tom and his team, I'd highly recommend watching the Amazon Prime documentary. I've added the link in the show notes below. We have a number of interesting guests lined up and I look forward to sharing these podcasts with you.